Howdy, partner. Welcome to Bad GM's Campaign Build-Along. I'm the Bad GM, Wayne Davis, and this is the show where we build an entire campaign from scratch for you to run for your group starting tonight. For the past 16 weeks or so, we've been building a Deadlands Classic campaign, so grab your notepad and let's get back to building. Before we start, a quick reminder that this week we'll have a campaign recap from my home group as we played the game after we dropped last week's new show. Needless to say, when I predicted they were going to do some things I hadn't anticipated, that was an understatement. That's coming up a little later on in the show. Right now, let's recap what we created last week. Last week, we picked up with the group deciding whether or not they wanted to start eliminating members of the Shannon gang, or did they want to just wait for their meeting with Buster Shannon? We're going to go with the thought that they decided to wait for the meeting and went ahead with the next step. They decided they wanted to try to get to Zebediah Thomas, and they knew the only way to do that was to gain access to the third floor of the Albuquerque Daily News office. We covered two possibilities, bum-rushing the walk and dead guard in the steps and searching outside for an entrance. Regardless of how they got there, they ultimately found out that there was nobody in the office. They did find a stairwell winding down to the basement, and when they got there, they found a number of profaned shamanistic and voodoo symbols, basically blood magic. There was a tunnel leading away from the basement, and it ultimately led to a warehouse-type building with two werewolves in it. The group either engaged with the werewolves, or they ran away. Either way, they figured out they weren't very far from the home of Zebediah Thomas. However, it's now under heavy guard, so we moved on. Fast-forwarding, the group made their way to the wagon wheel to try to find Buster Shannon. They ultimately did make contact with him, and surprisingly, he spoke with them and basically gave them all the information they needed. However, he did request that they allow him to fake his own death to escape the wrath of the board. Maybe the group allowed it, maybe they didn't. We went with the group doing it, and they got a packet of documents from Shannon detailing how Thomas had his wife killed. Shannon also suggested they be at a particular address by 4 a.m., and of course, the group made their way there. Using a combination that was also provided by Shannon, they got their hands on some silver and some cash. And about the time they finished their search of the house, they realized it was being surrounded. We ended with Zebediah Thomas entering the house, and it was pretty apparent that he's now some sort of walking dead. Before we pick up with today's build, I have a couple of notes I made when I was editing the audio for last week's show. First off, I ran some figures on the value of the 10 bars of silver the group got out of the safe. In 1876, silver was worth about $1.50 an ounce. With a bar weighing 10 ounces, each bar would be worth $15. So, 10 bars of silver worth $15 each, they got a total of $150 worth of silver. I had also mentioned when Buster Shannon was speaking to the group that he'd provide them with information about who he intended to pin his death on. However, I didn't give any indication during the show. So, if you ran last week's stuff and came up with your own stuff, fantastic. Thank you. Appreciate it. If you're not there yet, or if you just worked around that little nugget, let's go with there having been another handwritten letter in the stack of papers. It was in Shannon's handwriting, and it indicated he's got a couple of members of his gang that are so over the edge, it'd be a shame if something horrible got pinned on them. I'll let you decide what these dudes' names are, because quite frankly, I haven't thought that far ahead, and I'm probably just going to pull a couple of names out of thin air when I run this. But we at least have some sort of resolution for that fact that I missed in last week's build. So... With last week finally in our rearview mirror, let's get to building this week's stuff. We need to begin by working up a character sheet for Zebediah Thomas, since he's the big bad guy for this section of the adventure. Now, we could create it from scratch, like we did with Ezekiel Monroe, but I'd rather spend the time we've got today creating the adventure. And as we know from the Monroe build, character building takes quite a bit of time. So, here's what we're going to do. Take the muckraker template from the player's handbook. 
It's rather appropriate for Thomas, being a newspaper man and all. And what we're going to do to make him more challenging is put the harrowed condition on him. That means he's definitely undead, and he has a manatile running shotgun in his brain. Now, normally we'd need to decide who has control of Thomas's brain, but we're going to make this easy and say that Thomas has full control, which means he's one nasty hombre. What has changed is that he's become more bold and aggressive than he used to be. So pretty much all the background they got about him from his daughter is going to be null and void. He's got nine dominion points, which puts him in full control at this time. Now, make sure you read chapter 10 of the Player's Guide well, since that's the chapter on the Harrowed. There are a number of conditions that impact Thomas that we'll need to be remembering for this combat. Um, the big one is that the only way to truly kill him is to do five levels of wounds to the head. But then again... You know that already, because we've been doing that with Walking Dead. He's also got some harrowed powers, and those are detailed in Chapter 10 as well. We're going to use two of them, Claws and Soul Eater. I think they're appropriate. When the combat begins, use both of these as you see fit, as well as shots from the pistol that he's carrying. Also, the group's estimation of how many men he brought with them are going to be a bit off. There's only eight, but they're also Walking Dead, and they're carrying pistols and shotguns. So... Make sure you get the Walking Dead template from the Marshall's Guide open and handy. And Thomas will start the combat by taking a shot at one of the group members. Once that kicks off our little party here, run your initiative. Doesn't matter if the group wants to try to get the drop on him. They can't. He's got the drop on them. He gets one shot. Then we go to initiative. Thomas will fight the group alone for one round. Then two of his walking dead will enter the house each round until they've all come in. If at any point the group seems to have an overwhelming advantage, one of the walking dead will light and toss a stick of dynamite into the room and Thomas and all remaining walking dead will run off. Now, if they kill Thomas before this, the walking dead will fall to the floor permanently dead. The reason for that is because they don't actually have Manitou in their heads. They were raised using blood magic, and the Manitou in Thomas's head is technically running them. So once he's dead, they can no longer function. And yes, that's a homebrewed rule. You're welcome. Feel free to steal it. If they kill Zebediah, they've accomplished their goal. We'll get to what they can do next in a minute, so have them run like the wind to get out of the house, since all those gunshots will bring the police coming, and they're only going to have a couple of minutes to get clear before the cops arrive. If they delay too much, you can toss officers into the fray, but I honestly don't see that happening. So, let's cover the angle that has Thomas escaping. This means the group needs to get out of that house before the dynamite explodes. This is going to be another one of those cases where we're putting the group on the timer to make a decision. Set a timer for 45 seconds. That's precisely how long they've got to get out of that house and five yards or so clear before it explodes. It's a three-stick bundle, by the way, which is why they've got that much time. They wouldn't necessarily be paying attention to that when it's tossed, but some wise guy in your group is probably going to ask. And if they want to try to snuff the fuse to prevent the explosion, fine. Slide a hand check. Target a 14 to get to it fast enough to be able to snuff it out. Otherwise, that poor sucker is going to take all the damage from the explosion, which will be 9d20 since it's three sticks. Say sayonara to that character. But my group's going to probably run, mostly because they want to catch up with Thomas and finish what they started. Thomas and his walking dead will have a slight lead on them, but the group can track them pretty easily. The cops are probably not going to be giving the group any issues since they're heading for the house where it was reported there were gunshots coming from and an explosion most likely. It's not going to take a genius to figure out where Thomas is heading, his house, and the group will have to deal with the eight guards that are outside before they can get in. Gunslinger template, run the fight. 
Thomas and his remaining walking dead don't take part. Oh, and by the way, when they beat those gunslingers, go ahead and give them their white chip each. They're going to probably need them for what's coming. Okay, so this is all going to draw the police in, but this time they just form a perimeter around the house. We'll get to why in a minute. Once the fight has been finished outside, they can move inside. What's left at this point is Thomas, however many walking dead he had left, plus four more walking dead. This is going to be the final combat, as Thomas will do everything he can to take the group down, or he's going to go out on his shield. Go out swinging. This is going to get bowling shoe ugly, I could promise you. And if your group needs to cut and run, they'll need to regroup. But Zebediah Thomas will not still be in Albuquerque come morning. We'll deal with that later. Surviving this sort of combat deserves some serious rewards. So give each member of your group two blue, two red, and three white chips plus two points of grit. They can also find the name of the board member that Thomas has. Unfortunately, it's the banker, so there's no new information here. They also don't have any cool documents or anything to go on, which is going to be a bummer for them as well after all of this they went through. The cops still have a perimeter around the house when they exit, and as they walk out, the chief of police steps forward. He's a long, lean man with a big, bushy mustache. Think uh, Sam Elliott. He also has a blank expression on his face. And all he's going to say to the group is this. Somebody out there likes you. We got word from the governor that you aren't to be arrested or charged for any of this. But he didn't say we couldn't run you out of town. So at sunrise tomorrow, you leave Albuquerque and never come back. He's not going to be open to negotiation. And if anybody in the group tries, he'll have them arrested for disturbing the peace and held overnight. In the morning, they'll be escorted to the hotel and watched while they pack and then escorted to the city limits. Once they get back to their hotel, there will be a telegram on somebody's bed. You decide who. Boys, got word from a young lady in Dodge City. You might need a guardian angel. Hope I was able to help. Teresa. So they can speculate on exactly what Teresa did for them, but for our purposes, we know she got to the governor and somehow convinced him to do what he did. If they killed Zebediah and Buster Shannon's house, they'll be able to run and get back to their hotel without being stopped by police. At this point, Thomas's house will continue to be guarded so they won't get access to it if they go look. If they go to the hotel first, there will be a telegram on one of their beds, but this one's a little different. Boys, so long as you get out of Albuquerque at first light, you shouldn't have any legal entanglements in the city. Sorry, but that's all the time I could buy for you. Don't worry about what Zebediah knows. You already know everything he could tell you. Teresa. With that, they should realize they're clean and need to get out of town. If you've got any other results, such as some group members dying or something we hadn't considered, use what we've built out here and fill in the blanks with what makes sense to you. Or hey, send me an email or tweet. I'll take the time to work it out with you if you'd like. I don't sleep all that much, so I'm probably available. All right, let's fast forward to morning. They know they need to go, so uh, no hot breakfast. They're basically, I think, just going to have jerky in the saddle or something along those lines. Nine and a half days back to Dodge City, and they can catch a train from there back to Denver. Now, before we go on, what do we do if Zebediah Thomas is not still in Albuquerque in the morning? Uh, not much, really. It's just going to change what happens next. So let's move on. Once they get back to Denver, they'll get word to Mr. Norwood to meet. This time, he's going to meet with them at their hotel within an hour of them leaving their note. He looks concerned, and he is sweating profusely as the group gives their report. Now, he pays them the extra 5000 that they've got for taking care of the Shannon gang. If they got Thomas as well, they'll get the three grand for that. Otherwise, no three grand. And he doesn't seem to be overly concerned about that at the moment. Seems like he's got something to say that he can't seem to figure out how to say. The group's going to have to work a bit to get the information out of him, but it boils down to this. 
the banker is missing. Norwood went to check in with him this morning and saw the guards were dead. The house was a wreck and the banker was missing. He reports he saw blood in the house, but nobody, himself or the extra man he brought in, could find a body. Now, he's going to be spitting out theories and ideas like 100 miles a minute, but it's going to all be nonsense, which is going to give you a chance to kind of just act like a maniac for a minute or so, if you'd like. In the midst of this hysteria, a messenger arrives and hands him a note. He opens it, reads it, and with a look of dread on his face, hands it over to the group. It's a telegram, and it is straight to the point. O'Toole's hitmen. I have your boss. Willing to make a trade. Nuddle in man's number 10. Deadwood. Don't make me wait. Baker. Norwood is in a complete panic at this point, and one of the things he's mentioning is a concern that the other two members of the board that you haven't already hit might have figured out what O'Toole has going on. Once he finally gets himself calmed a bit, the cool demeanor he usually shows will come back, and he offers $25,000 for the safe return of his boss by any means necessary. He'll pay 15 grand up front with the other 10 grand coming when O'Toole is safely back in Denver. He's got nothing on the baker, but that's not going to matter to the group since they know where he is already and they know who he is. There's no need to background a fellow who's called you out, right? Norwood will cover the train tickets for the group and they'll be taking the Wasatch line from Denver to Chicago where they'll switch to the Iron Dragon line and head into Dakota. Eventually, they'll hit the switch that'll take them into Deadwood. All of this train travel, when you add in the layover and transfer time in Chicago, will take five days. The Baker has a half a day head start, but (laughs) you and I know a little something the group doesn't. He didn't travel by train. He's got himself a mad science gadget that flies, so he didn't have to go the way the group is going to have to go. That means that by the time they get to Deadwood, the Baker's been back in town with O'Toole for a couple of days, and we are going to end with the group arriving by train in Deadwood. Deadwood is covered in the Marshall's Guide, by the way, so if you want to get a jump on me, check that out. I'd also say the HBO series Deadwood would be some prime viewing if you want to get a feel for how this part of the game might play out. But we're going to stop the build portion of the show right here. Next week, we'll pick up after they get off the train in Deadwood and we'll see what kind of trouble they can get themselves into this time. It's now time to do the campaign recap for my home game. And I can assure you my group took me to the limits last week. But before we get into that, we need to recap what happened the last time we all got together. Last session began with the group ordering their gizmos from the Smith & Robards catalog. They waited six days to get it, then headed for Ezekiel Monroe's plantation to scope it out. After realizing how much stuff they'd have to deal with during the day, they decided to come back at night and check again. Realizing a night attack would be the way to go, they put Aniston and Tyler in the hayloft of a barn with the other three, getting themselves as close to the main house as they could. After setting loose a bull, along with the rest of the barnyard animals, the group had the chance to kill Monroe, which they did with headshots. They also had taken the opportunity to let loose a whole light of dynamite and set the main house on fire. Scott, Gabe, and Max got into the house, got the information they were looking for, and used the escape tunnel to get out. Aniston and Tyler got away in the confusion, and they all eventually met back together in Little Rock and got themselves out of town. They got back to Denver, collected their money, and got their next assignment. Take out Zebediah Thomas, a.k.a. The Butcher. They took the train to Dodge City, as the Santa Fe Trail begins there and will take them to Albuquerque, but they stopped there to speak to Thomas's daughter, who provided them with a lot of information about her father. And we ended the session with the group leaving the meeting. 
So that's where we picked up with this session. As we began, the group decided once they'd returned to Dodge City that spending the night there was preferable to heading out and only getting a couple hours of riding in before they had to go to sleep. Specifically, something was mentioned about getting a hot meal in a comfortable bed. That being done, the group headed out onto the Santa Fe Trail at daybreak, and as we planned out in the campaign build for this part, the first four days, roughly, went without issue. So on the night of night four, it was Aniston, Max, and Tyler on guard when the Walking Dead issue came up. I'd had all three make their scrutinized checks, and Tyler was the only one who made his. I pulled him aside and pointed out that he saw something moving about 25 yards or so out from the camp, but with the moonlight not being all that good, he wasn't quite sure what it was. Tyler decided that a good defense is a strong offense, so he returned to the fire, grabbed a stick and some fabric, and fashioned himself a torch, which he then flung in the direction of the movement. It not only lit a few tufts of dry grass on fire, but also illuminated the four walking dead. And with that, the battle began. Tyler and Max took a bit of damage during the fight, and Max did manage to drop one. However, it was Aniston who got the overall kills, using a double dynamite stick, which is two sticks wrapped together with fuse, to not only blow a hole in the ground, but to make hamburger meat out of the three remaining walking dead. The entire combat didn't even last an entire round, and Scott and Gabe were awakened by the boom of the dynamite, and probably had falling undead bits landing on them. And yes, they actually came up with that visual. As I had anticipated when we wrote this up originally, it did have them a bit paranoid after that, and there was a bit of discussion about who would be on which watch on what days, which came into play on night eight. Scott reminded me that the groupings stayed the same and that they rotated every night as to which grouping was first or second, so the three-person group would be on second watch again on night eight. I think he was hoping Second Shift was the one that was getting the second batch of Walking Dead. And yeah, it's probably a bit of metagaming on his part, but since he's known me for about 35 years, I'm going to let that slide. And it didn't really matter anyway. I'd already decided that whatever shift Scott and Gabe were on, that was the one the next batch of Walking Dead were coming out on. And since it was the two of them, I decided to take pity on them and change the encounter to just four Walking Dead instead of the veteran Walking Dead and the five regular ones we wrote in. I'm getting soft in my old age, I guess. Scott and Gabe managed to do better than the other group had, dropping all four without being hit. Gabe dropped one, and then Scott used Aniston's dynamite trick and finished off the rest. <laughs> yeah, it was one of those nights. The group made its way to Albuquerque and checked themselves into the Hotel Gato. However, they didn't take the opportunity to ask Maria about the information she had. Instead, they headed straight off to the distilleria. Once there, they wound up speaking with Mr. Marquez, who had them join him in his office for a private conversation about the Shannon gang. During that, he laid out all the information he had on them. As they continued to speak, he made it clear that many of the businesses that he's aware of that are making payments, they can't really afford those payments that they're making. So... To entice the group to deal with the Shannon gang, he offered the group three cases of his special reserve tequila, which he claims is worth $1,000 a bottle or six grand per case. They agreed, and this discussion will come full circle in just a little bit. The group decided to stay in the distilleria for the rest of the night and drink, since Marquez promised them the drinks were on him for the rest of the night. Needless to say, they stumbled back to their hotel drunk, with the exception of Tyler, who only had one or two and was buzzed but not blitzed. Morning arrived, and the group headed over to the distilleria to set up to track the two bagmen. All of the group members set up in the open-air market we laid out, and they were, for the most part, able to make their track rolls. I decided that so long as one person made their roll, they could redirect the rest of the group in the right direction, though in hindsight, maybe I should have just let them get lost. Keep that in mind when you run it. Eventually, they got to the house we discussed, and they watched the men knock and enter. This is where they diverted from what I thought they might do. 
Caution was the rule tonight, apparently, and Scott and Gabe suggested that hanging out and scoping the area would be a better idea. So they hung out around the neighborhood, moving frequently so as not to be seen too much, and they decided that was going to be the way they were going to handle it. They saw multiple other pairs of men show up, knock on the door, and enter, but they never saw anyone leave. Scott specifically suggested looking for another door, and they made their way through the alley and eventually saw the back door of the house, though they didn't see anyone come out that way either. A discussion then broke out about whether or not the group hits the entire city in one day or if they split up their gathering over the entire week. Scott's theory was that the latter was the plan, and he suggested that the group come back tomorrow to see if he was right. Something was also said about coming back at night to see what they could see. In the meanwhile, though, they decided to head to the offices of the Albuquerque Daily News. Scott decided that while en route to the offices, he'd buy a copy of the paper and see what the slant of the news was in this town. Now, I'd already kind of decided a little before that that I wanted the paper to be truly fair and balanced, and so that's what he saw, a paper that presented the news without commentary or slant. I also put in a nugget about the explosion and burning of a plantation in Little Rock. I did that really to just mess with the group more than anything, but they actually ran with it a bit later on in the night. Just keep listening, you'll see how. I also added a piece about a string of robberies that have been going on in a particular street in town, though I didn't name the street due to me putting it in there on the fly because I hadn't really even anticipated them buying a newspaper. Shows how little I know. But with my group, that's usually not an issue for any of this since if they want to run with something, they're going to run with it anyway. They made their way to the newspaper offices, headed right up to the second floor, and got the description we put in during last week's build session. They marched right up to one of the reporters and attempted to ask questions about Zebediah Thomas. The reporter, who was busy typing up his story, was really just trying to blow him off. He gave nothing answers to all their questions, and they eventually let the poor guy be and decided to head to the stairs going up. When they were stopped by two guards, I gave the description of them. It didn't seem to phase them in the least. They asked about going upstairs, and they were denied. They asked about getting permission to meet with Thomas, and the guard took their names and said that if Thomas agreed, they'd get a note at their hotel, which the group also provided the name for. However, they also pretty matter-of-factly were told that permission's probably not going to be given. The group left without incident and decided to scope out the office building from the outside and see what they could see. At this point, a throwaway comment I'd made when they were speaking to the reporter came up. They'd asked about the crime they'd seen reported in the paper, and the reporter told them that Toby has the crime beat, so the group decided to seek out Toby. That's when I mentioned the small restaurant directly across the street from the office, and to entice them to go inside, I mentioned that they saw some reporters they'd seen in the office heading into the restaurant. My group, being the types of guys they are, walked into the restaurant and called for Toby. A man sitting at a table near one of the walls looked up and responded. It was obvious he was working hard. He was transcribing notes of his from a small pad to a larger one so he could type it up. He also mentioned that he was in a bit of a rush since he had 90 minutes to make his deadline. They asked about Zebediah Thomas, and Toby said he'd actually never met the man. When pressed, he noted he was hired by Thomas's daughter before she left to go to California or wherever it is she went. He also noted that pretty much everybody else there was also hired by the daughter. Scott specifically inquired about whether or not Toby was bothered by the fact he'd never been his boss, and Toby responded by stating that he gets paid, he gets left alone, and so therefore he doesn't really get bothered. They did ask about the Shannon gang, and Toby gave them the information about the wagon wheel and Buster Shannon that the group would have gotten from inside the house if they'd gone in. 
They finally left Toby to finish his story, but Toby did say that if a group were to, say, do something about Shannon, he'd make sure to keep names out of the story and maybe make sure the story that ran wasn't exactly the truth. He also followed up on that nugget I put in there about the blow-up of the plantation in Little Rock. He said that apparently the governor of Arkansas is offering a reward to find the people responsible for that incident. Though up to this point, he's having no luck. All right, after this meeting, the group decided to head back to the hotel where they finally spoke with Maria. She gave out the information she had to give, and while the group shared a knowing look and Gabe really wanted to tell her what he believed had happened to old dear Jacob, Scott stopped him by letting her know that they'd tell her if they found anything out. Once that had taken place, the group returned to their rooms, then met in one of them to strategize a little bit. Scott came up with the idea to hit up a couple of the other businesses being targeted by the Shannon gang to see if they could maybe get some additional goodies or freebies for taking care of Shannon. His argument was that if Marquez was willing to give them what he was giving them, well, maybe they could get a little something out of a few others. Now, I have to admit, that took me by surprise. I kind of expect that thinking from Jim when he plays, but not Scott. Anyway, Gabe and the rest of the group tried to talk him out of it, but he wasn't having it. Gabe decided he was not going to be a part of this, and he refused to go with Scott to meet with Marquez. So Aniston instead got stuck with the gig. The two went back to the distilleria, and they met with Marquez. As soon as Scott laid out his plan, Marquez stared at him like, Basically, he'd just stolen his wife. He was insulted and threatened to pull his own offer off the table if the group was going to be that greedy. Understanding when he's lost, Scott gave up on the plan. Aniston apologized for Scott's behavior and they left the distilleria. Though it has been noted, Scott has been banned from the building for the duration. And that's where we wrap the session for the night. Next week, we're going to go back to a build program only, so who knows exactly how far we're going to get. Now... Before I get into my usual wrap-up for the program, uh, I do just want to kind of throw a personal note out here. Uh, Aniston, who is one of our players, a guy that I mentioned frequently during the show, he was uh, involved in a little automobile accident before the recording of this show. He's he's going to be fine in the long run. He got a little banged up. His, his car got jacked up, but he's going to be fine. But I just, I know he listens to the show. And look, I mean, I've known him since the day he was born. So I just want to say, hey, kiddo, um, I'm thinking about you. I know our listeners are thinking about you. Get better. And uh, I certainly expect to see your butt at the next game. If I got to come haul you to it myself. He knows I'm kidding. But yeah, just well wishes and, and thoughts to Aniston as he uh, as he recovers from this. All right, to our usual wrap up. I'd like to take a moment to encourage you to check out our other podcast, Role Playing History. That's the show where we break down games, systems, creators, and other subjects within the tabletop role playing industry, and we give you a thorough historical breakdown. We've even covered dice on that show, so you know I'm willing to do a deep dive. Role Playing History is available wherever you get your podcasts or from our website at badgmproductions.net. All Deadlands classic materials referenced during this podcast are the trademarked and copyrighted materials of Pinnacle Entertainment Group and are used here for entertainment purposes only. If you're interested in purchasing any of their fine game products, check out their website at peginc.net. The music we use on this show comes from Pixabay.com. Check them out for license-free, royalty-free music you can use for your next project. Bad GM's Campaign Build Along is a production of Bad GM Productions. Check us out on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash gaming forward slash Bad GM Prod. Twitter at Bad GMP. YouTube Bad GM Productions. You can email us at badgmproductions at gmail.com. And you can catch us online. The website is badgmproductions.net. Next week, we build up our group's showdown with the baker. 
can they save their financial benefactor? (laughs) We shall see. But that's next week, partner. Until then, I'm the bad GM, Wayne Davis, and I'll see you 